Hi, my name is Scarlett Lewis and I'm the founder of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement. I'd like to welcome you, the listeners, to the Choose Love Podcast, a place where we come together in love and discuss how we can all choose this in our daily lives to take what we've learned and use it to help make a safer, more peaceful and loving world. And Dr. Spiros, has been practicing internal medicine for 20 years at Danbury Hospital and served as chief of hospital medicine from 2016 to 2017. He is now part of the Danbury Medical Group, and we are so blessed to have them on our podcast this morning. Hello, Dr. Spiros. Good morning. How are you? Good to be with you. Uh, Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. do you want to introduce yourself a little bit and, yeah. and say yeah, why, so, why you're why you're focused uh, in in the area that you're focused on now? Sure, my name my name is Spiro Smith. Um, I was a hospital doc for 20 years, and for the last four and a half years, I've been the medical director of the Danbury Medical Group here in Danbury. Um, I was also the director of patient experience for three years uh, at the hospital, and. Uh, had a passion for bringing compassion and empathy back into uh, medicine uh, and and to the world in general, uh, and and that's I think what stimulated my uh, this this conversation this morning when Pam Brown reached out to me. Absolutely. Uh, so I, uh, my my pet peeve or, or gripe, I guess, uh, with the world right now is that we, we're, we're going down a path where I see less and less compassion, empathy, however you want to call it. Um, and, and it's interesting because empathy, the way we use it in the States, is not the way the original word uh, was uh, was conceived. So if you say empathy in Greek, which, which is a Greek word, it's actually not a good thing. It's a bad thing. <laughs> so I prefer to use compassion being part Greek. That is as so a, interesting that you say that because empathy was taken as a completely it was misconstrued as a word when it was brought over and, and translated. Empathy means um, a, a, the wrong form of passion in a in a maniacal sense. So, so is not, it is it originally easy. is it originally a Greek word? Of course, yes, absolutely. And what is the definition in Greek? And, uh, so it's empathos. It means a, um, a misguided passion. In, in a uh, almost a maniacal sense, not so when, when I used it, um, uh, not knowing that, I used that in, in Greece, as I'm part Greek and visit every year, and they said, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, empathy. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 <laughs> that's, not, that's, that's not what we mean by empathy. So, so I, I've adjusted uh, since finding that out uh, years ago to compassion instead. <laughs> That is so interesting. And I want to tell you, my mom just walked with, in. With, uh, and with Dr. Chris Cook, I don't know if you're familiar with Chris Cook. Um, he, he was a professor at Western Connecticut and left. And uh, Chris and I had multiple conversations about uh, compassion. Yeah. Well, my mom is my mom. I'm at my mom's right now because I left my computer in her car last night and she she just came in and she goes, I love him. And then when you mentioned Dr. Chris Cook, she came back in and she's going like this. And we're doing this surprise look because, of course, Dr. Chris Cook is a founding board member of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement, of course. Mentioned he, I haven't, I haven't seen Chris for, for years, but we were very good friends. And when he, when he did the Compassionate Achiever, I brought him to the hospital for a, a, a pep talk to try to get people stimulated. 
Absolutely. And so, so his understanding of compassion and empathy, he wants to make sure everybody knows the difference. And this is so important. Every time I speak to teachers, I explain this to them because there's so much focus on empathy, but empathy lights up the same receptors in our brain as physical pain. Empathy is actually a painful process. That's exactly, that's exactly right. And that's how it was construed. So empathy, meaning physical pain, meaning misguided uh, passion from the pain, et cetera. That's, that's exactly where the root comes from. That's amazing. And why Chris also had used compassion and not empathy as his uh, go-to word. That's amazing. So we have this formula for choosing love. So for being able to thoughtfully respond to whatever is going on in your life with love. In other words, being in control, having your locus of control inside and being able to choose your response and to choose love in your response. And the formula starts with courage because courage is the most important character value that underlies all the rest. We need courage to do just about everything right in our lives. (laughs) And then uh, this, the rest comes from Jesse's message that he left on our kitchen chalkboard shortly before he died that spurred this entire movement, nurturing, healing, love, nurturing means loving kindness and gratitude. Healing means forgiveness and love. And, and Dr. Cook helped me, uh, comprise this last character value. Uh, love is compassion in action. So compassion is identifying a need and then actively doing something to help ease that need. So when you have the courage to be grateful, even when things aren't going your way, the courage to, to forgive, even if the person who hurt you isn't sorry, doesn't care, doesn't know, or forgive yourself and have the courage to step outside of your own busyness, distraction, even pain and suffering to help somebody else. You've chosen love and you've made the world um, through your actions, a safer, more peaceful and loving place. That is, that is the basis of the choose love movement. And you did that when you made the move from the hospital to the Danbury medical group, you were practicing compassion in action because you saw a lack of compassion and you wanted to put that back into the medical field. How are you doing that? Well, we're doing that by embracing, you know, there are about uh, 30, 36 staff members in our group and uh, we practice it every day. Uh, don't do unto others, etc. So that every interaction we have, whether it's front office staff, whether it's nursing, our interactions with patients, whether it's that phone call that irate patient uh, who's stuck in an ER or something to that effect, that the response has to be um, one of compassion and not one of, of um, reaction. And, and all too often we'll react. So when somebody um, uh, throw something at us in a negative uh, fact. We, we react with negativity, so we're bringing our baggage to the table as well, and, and the only, that no good can come of that. So trying to understand the other person and recognizing that there are very, very few uh, evil people, if you will. I hate to use the term, but, but uh, it, it's uh, uh, most people will come around, uh, at least most of our patients will, if, if, uh, if you show them compassion. Uh, and so bringing the art of that back into medicine, whether that be at the front end or in our nursing or our doctors or students that come through here, it, it has really been the goal uh, to, to not, not, not just uh, create. And I've taught all my life. I've taught at, you know, at the, in medical college, both New York Medical College and, and the University of Vermont. 
and now in the office with residents and medical students. Um, the, the knowledge is one thing, and of course, knowledge is power, and you have to have that in medicine. But an equally important part of medicine is having that compassion and that emotional intelligence to be able to to add to make the patient feel uh, uh, comfortable with you and open up to you. And until you otherwise you don't get you you miss out on on half the story. Uh, if they freeze up and and they don't feel comfortable in your presence, and that that uh, level of comfort comes from compassion and from being genuine. Uh, so it, we it, it's a it's a it's an art, and it also comes from the heart. It's not just the uh, so we, we did um, uh, resident simulation labs at the hospital that we set up with uh, Jay Weiner, a good friend of mine, Dr. Weiner. And in that sim lab, we had a module called the difficult patient, where we would prep the patient to attack the resident or medical student whoever was going through the module. And not attack physically, but attack verbally. And I'm upset. And why you guys don't know what you're doing and you know things like that. And, and the response to that uh, can be scripted, but unless it's coming from the heart, that patient doesn't feel it. And the powerful part of it was that when the, when the resident really reacted in a compassionate way, scripted or not scripted, it would take the patient, who, by the way, was a paid patient, it's a sim lab, right? It would take the patient off guard, despite the fact that the patient wasn't truly angry and was just scripting. Uh, they didn't know how to respond. They were taken aback, and, and uh, you know, we had these little earpieces, ear and we would prompt them, come on, come on, be rude again, and, and they couldn't. So the power of compassion and love, and of course, compassion comes from inner love, right? So you should be love for doing what you do, for giving back to, to uh, humankind and not, and not really bringing baggage to the table in that kind of inter interaction. So, so important. So, yeah, so for example, um, if somebody says something verbally abusive uh, in, in medicine and you say well you seem to be bothered about that in that tone so the man my facial expression as opposed to you seem to be bothered by that yeah, that same same scripted message very different tone and very different level of compassion on both responses amazing that that is amazing and we need compassion in our interaction with our doctors so that we trust you and to, to increase that level of trust. And then when we trust someone, doesn't healing accelerate? So I Absolutely. trust what without, you're telling me and yeah. Without question. I mean, we have, uh, we have uh, there was a recent study, I think a few years ago out of UCLA where they took, um, and, and <laughs> may, may, may my UCLA colleagues forgive me if I'm misquoting a part of the study, but they pulled uh, random people off the street uh, and I think there were about 60 to 100 patients. And uh, so uh, of Los Angeles, they try to um, uh, do this in, in, in age appropriate fashion. They brought them in and um, half of them got blood tests looking for inflammatory markers, cytokines, interleukins, um, substances that we know cause inflammation in the body. Uh, right off the bat, measure levels of them. And the other half went into mindful awareness, um, guided imagery for about a half an hour or so. And then they had their substances measured, these, the same substances. And the levels were, were, were very um, unequal in that, in that the group that had gotten their blood drawn right away had markers of inflammation that were very high compared to the, the ones that had just gone through the mindful awareness. So we know that, that a, a compassionate approach and, and if you feel good about 
you know, the, the interaction with your doctor that has a very powerful effect. And, and I, I think we now can understand also the power of prayer, for example, when they said that, you know, the, a village came together and prayed for a loved one or a friend or a community member, and that loved one knew that that was happening, uh, you know, at least part of it. And I, I don't want to get into that, that uh, realm, but at least part of that is, is that feel-good uh, uh, correlating to or uh, um, uh, ch changing your, your inflammation, your body's inflammation. So that's, it, it can now be scientifically proven. It's not just, you know, okay, yeah, feel good. And, and that uh, it, it, we can quantify it. It's become granular. And quantifying something that helps our inflammation is huge because doesn't inflammation lead to almost everything negative that can happen to your body, including cancer. Pretty much any disease, and, any disease, cardiovascular, autoimmune, cancer, you name it. So it stems from inflammation. Amazing. In, in any interaction, do you think that that is based on our mirror neurons? I mean, we are wired to connect with one another. So if I'm uh, speaking with someone and I'm angry and, and they, we react in, uh, in defense of ourselves. Sometimes it's like a natural thing. You kind of, you know, you're, you, uh, you react and freeze fight or flight and, sure. uh, and then it just escalates from there. So you need a few skills and tools, some coping skills to be able to help manage your own reaction. So in other words, to thoughtfully respond, as you were saying in the beginning, instead of react, which by the way, is all about what we teach at the choose love movement. Uh, so I, I, I love Pam for, she just heard your message and knew that it was so connected to what we say. Um, no, this, this is beautiful. We're on, we're, we're definitely on the same page. Absolutely. And, and uh, I just say, can you imagine a generation that grows up with coping skills, with the understanding that whatever happens in your life, good or bad, can be used as an opportunity for growth. And given the knowledge of how to take that pain and use it, turn it into something that can help someone else, uh, that's the world that I want to live in. That's, <laughs> that's yeah, absolutely. You're, you're preaching to the choir. I, 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 I couldn't have put it better myself. Uh, it's 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 important no matter how you look at it from my standpoint and as a healer um as life skills as as a way of of managing your own emotions throughout life uh you know, anger doesn't bring i mean anger brings about nothing good <laughs> at least in the long run so uh, prolonged anger is as bad for you as smoking is it half a pack of cigarettes uh, it's it's close to that. Uh, you know, we we, we you know, depending on what study you read, but but we know that anger, uh, you know, develops a stress response, can cause vasospasm, can cause, um, you know, a, a, a severe emotional um, response, whether it be anger, grief, etc., can cause your heart to go into uh, failure. Basically, what we call Takatsubo's cardiomyopathy, um, you know, died of a broken heart syndrome. We now know what that entity is. And we don't really quite understand what the cause is, but you know, perhaps a surge of catecholamines, adrenaline that, that overwhelms the heart with it. So we know that it has, it can have some very real physical um, ill effects. And Dr. Spiros, 
we are maybe coming out of a little bit this period of a, a year and a half at least of social uh, distancing. Social distancing uh, is an oxymoron to what we need as human beings. We need connection. We need one another. And, uh, and so what are you seeing in your practice relative to this time in COVID? And, you know, I'm going to ask, what are your recommendations for parents with kids that are struggling and and it's not just the kids it's us big kids as well it's not just the kids no you, you put it very well uh so what we've seen during covid is a mixed bag of tricks uh, um, about half of our patients that were fairly isolated to begin with or didn't have strong family ties uh spend many hours sitting in front of a computer either due to, due to work or, or uh, other reasons uh, aren't doing well uh, anxiety, depression, uh, pill upon pill, and and just an inability to get out of that rut. As you said, human beings are, you know, very, very correctly put, are, are social animals, social beings. Um, the other half uh, actually did better during COVID, strangely enough, because they were able to get, get away from that grind of commute, two-hour commute, and 10 hours at a computer. They spend more time with family. Uh, they got out in nature more. And, you know, human beings weren't meant to be in front of a screen like this or, or on, on, on cell phones all day. They were meant to be outside. So the, I think the, the uniform message we've given is get out, walk more, spend more time with family. You know, OK, yes, you can't socialize with 50 people. Socialize with, you know, if you have a strong uh, social support network, socialize with your immediate family. Uh, get to know them, get the emotional response. It, it's, it's, it's amazing how many emotions have come up during this and, and uh, emotions that people didn't know they had about family members, you know, good and bad with it. Mm -hmm. So those that have been able to, to use it constructively, get out, do more physical activity, um, it, have done better. And those that haven't and were more socially isolated have really gone downhill. So we are seeing a pandemic of anxiety and depression. We were anyway, but, but, but with COVID, it became you know, that fivefold. Right. Going into COVID, we were having that. So I call it a super pandemic because I've been looking for exactly. a word that's above a pandemic and I can't find it. So I call those super pandemics. And you said kind of you you made a remark that it was 50 50 so 50 it's not, like, yeah, no. it's, it's, that's a that's a very generic you know statement yeah. on my part it, it's uh you know anecdotal of course and and uh, but but about a half of my patients uh, that, that came and couldn't cope with what happened with covid yeah wow and the okay. other half and, and and again we are you know we we're in a, a kind of a um, a suburban rural area. So we do have access to nature. My friends in the city had, had a very, it was probably 80, 20, as far as their, they really didn't do well. Um, you know, we look outside and all we can see is asphalt and, and nothing's moving. And yeah. they went into this isolation mode that was horrendous. And so what, so for people who are listening who are struggling because they have felt very isolated and they are having anxiety. Uh, their kids are, are, are anxious. What, what would you tell them? 
I would tell them get out, get out in nature as much as possible. Walk, take uh, you know, walk around a lake, walk in the woods. Get out, get out and spend more time. Um, yeah. Spend more time with the family outdoors. Get them away from devices, which is something I've been preaching even before COVID. Um, I, I think that yes, technology is very useful. Obviously, we're having this Zoom meeting, which is. Uh, we wouldn't be able to have, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but, uh, and that's great. But again, we're not meant to be around technology continuously all day. And, and I think for a child's brain or a young, a young, uh, you know, teenager's brain, it's, it's, they're meant to develop in a multifaceted approach, not just on a phone all day where they're doing this and responding. They, our ability to critically think the deep thinking mechanisms uh, are going away. And that's not for me, that's for the neuroplasticians of the world um, that, that have, are now doing functional MRIs and PET scans and seeing that um, when you're on a, sure, you can multitask and go from one task to the other and do it very well, but that's not using your critically think, critical thinking, deep thinking mechanisms. And it doesn't light up on that fun functional MRI. So that the worry is amongst the neuroplasticians of the world, and I, I happen to train under a, a phenomenal one, uh, Bill Ramachandran out of UCSD. He's the, the director of um, the Cognitive Center at UCSD, University of California, San Diego. And um, it, it, it's, we, we know that our ability to sleep on a problem and wake up and say, oh, got it, Eureka, that Eureka moment, that deep thinking moment is, is quickly being lost because of, because of technology. So when know, knowing that um, when, when I was raising my children, they're both in, in college, one's in medical school, the other's in vet school, um, we didn't, uh, they didn't get phones until they were 18. So they went to college and got their first cell phone. But now they had computers for work, for school work, of course, and all that, and they knew how to use them and had a, a school email and all that, but they, they, they didn't belong to any social media and didn't have their cell phones. Until, that is until incredible. They got and and I thought you know, they, they, that was their 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 mother did most of that work. Their mother was was my my wife Lisa was adamant about that. Uh, you know, stick stick to the basics. Uh, learn farming. Be in nature. Uh, uh, you know, uh, learn how to think. Learn how to uh, learn how to be compassionate. And, and of course, she was instrumental in, in with with my support. But uh, it, it took two. Uh, to, to do this, if uh, if one parent disagrees or if uh, you succumb to the the, the, the peer pressure, etc., it uh, goes by the wayside. And they did very well after the first, the initial. Hey, everybody has a cell phone, and we don't. Right. And we said, look, it's your dad's a doctor. Um, uh, we we both grew up this way, and and we have a little knowledge on this thing. This is no good. And it took them a few years to convince them, but now they're seeing it when they're in college. Uh, seeing the ill effects and other people around them. And my son's a, a fifth year medical student in Dublin, Ireland, and, and said, Incredible. boy, you know what? We're now, we're now seeing all the detrimental effects that you guys were preaching about 15 years ago. Wow. And, and now, I again, not to say, you know, I have my cell phone right here. It's a, it's a, it's a useful tool. It's not, I, I need it. I need to get texts. I need to get emails. And, but it, it, it's a very easy tool to, to, to abuse. That's amazing. And I think just by you saying that you're giving permission for other people to limit their kids' cell phone use, but it's so much easier to just be like, I mean, I, I literally go out to dinner and I see a family of four, you've got two parents, they're sitting around a table, both on their cell phone. They've got their kids sitting across from each other with iPads. 
And it's all that I can do to not go over and, and say, you have two live children in front of yes. you and, and you could be present in the moment. You could be learning. Interact, interact. Exactly. Interact. How do you pick up on emotional intelligence with, without interaction? And, and we were the same way. If we went out to dinner with friends and, and with kids, but when our kids were younger, uh, and we did frequently and the, you know the kid did this and was looking at the at the cell phone my wife would turn around and say no 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 that's not acceptable you know and and, and if you can't understand that as a parent then you know we we have no business socializing with you that's you know, that, that, we're on a different frequency it's not about being mean or, or angry or anything like that it's about saying look this is not acceptable social behavior and we don't want to show that we don't want to make that acceptable for our children it's incredible. And, you know, I raised my boys on a farm and I did that intentionally because I wanted them to be around animals. I wanted them to be outside. I always thought it was a good day when they came in and their fingernails were dirty because it really meant they were in the soil and, and, and having fun. And, and that was a huge thing for me. And so thank good. I have to say, thank goodness. Um, we didn't have a TV. You and I are so alike uh, because I realized one day, oh my gosh, I spend more time commuting and at work than I do with my boys during the week. I literally unplugged my TV, donated it to Goodwill on my way to work the next day. And we read, we played games, we talked, we played and, and, and it was enough. It was enough. And when you think about this thing, I, I think that this is, I, I think I'm addicted to it. We, we um, all are. I think we all are. That's not, that, that's okay. the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm coming out right now saying I'm addicted to myself. Yeah, well, we all are. There's no, <laughs> no question about it. Yeah. Some uh, others, and, and to, try to, to try to limit that addiction is the question, not whether we're addicted or not. Well, for me, the bombshell that you dropped was that it limits critical thinking. And critical, I don't know how you, uh, if you don't have your critical thinking abilities, then you can be led down a path that is not good for you. You don't have any control in your life if you can't critically think about situations and make choices that are in your own best interests. This is disturbing. You know, it, it, it's very disturbing. And I think, you, you know, you, you saw the Chinese limit screen time in a very, of course, dictatorial fashion, no, no question, but they did it for a reason. It wasn't a brainless move. Uh, now, you can argue the way they did it and all that, of course, but, but they did it based on research and science and seeing that, A, um, the, the body mass index of, of, of young people was going up and also their ability to critically think and, and emotional intelligence and all, all that stuff. So that, that there, was, there was wisdom to the move, the way, you know, the, the method of course was a little dictatorial, but. Right, oh my gosh. Well, I, I, I do wanna say that you also have a background in nutritional biochemistry. I do, yes. And so how does that factor into your practice? That factors in, 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 a, in a huge way, 15 times a day, and that I use nutrition, and I believe in prevention, not just you come in, you have conditioned me, give you pill, bye-bye, come back in three months, we raise your, you know, increase your dose of pill, bye-bye again. It, it's about, it's a two-way street. I need engagement from my patients, so my patients really need to 
you know, use diet, exercise, and the stuff we, the tools we talk about. And it may take another 10, 15 minutes. It's not, it's not fiscally sound to do this, but it's the right thing to do. So we use nutrition on, on, a, on an every patient basis, whether it be hypertension, diabetes. We've had diabetics come off of three of their medications and drop their hemoglobin A1Cs from nine to six in a six month period, those that engage and do things the right way. Um, by lowering their, their simple you know, carbohydrate sugar uh, load on a daily basis, uh, getting out, walking more, uh, it, you know, the, the tidbits like that. So um, nutritional biochemistry, metabolic biochemistry, is a, is a, uh, it, it's huge. The, the NHS in Britain about two months ago came out with a statement, and they normally don't. They're not a medical body. They're more of a Medicare-like body, the National Health Service. Um, based on a population study of, I think, 15, 20 years, and again, forgive me if I'm misquoting the, the exact nature of it, but the, the message was there was a, there's a 50% reduction in cardiovascular disease and cancer in patients that followed a predominantly plant-based diet and exercised aerobically daily. And they quantified both as to what percentage plant-based, and, and, and it was about 90, 95%, and daily aerobic activity of, of at least an hour or so. Uh, and on top of that, people that had sedentary uh, jobs like eight to 10 hours of sitting, those that got up and walked around during, during that work time as, a, as opposed to those that, compared to those that, that didn't do that, there was a difference in outcomes again with it. So it, it's very, very powerful stuff. Uh, and, and incredible. It, it's an incredible tool to, you know, you, we've had people come off of their blood pressure medications by weight loss and low sodium diets alone. Uh, the, the diabetes issue is easy. Uh, cholesterol modification. You know, the Cleveland Clinic came out um, about a, two, a year or two ago and said if America, and it's a bold statement, but if America was vegan, there would be no cardiovascular disease in the States. Uh, so, so it, you know, it, we it, now that's not advocating everybody turn vegan or, overnight, but it gives you a tool to say, well, hold on, inflammation, and it, and it makes sense. Uh, we pollute our environment so much at this point that you know, uh, whether you're talking about the chicken you buy in the supermarket or the meat, etc., uh, that isn't the same animal that our ancestors bred on the farm locally. Uh, so the it, it 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 does follow. It makes sense that the more plant-based and the more organic, the less, the less pollutants you have in your diet, the less inflammation you have, the less inflammation, the less disease. Understanding that we're all gonna get some level of inflammation from our surroundings because there's no way to, to, to live a completely pollutant-free, you know, pesticide, chemical-free life. That's incredible. That's incredible. So and that's, it's- that's my baseline it, uh, conversation with patients. Amazing. It takes a little, but that's, you're asking them to put in a little bit of effort. It's like, we're, we're such a society that's immediate pleasure, right? I mean, with a diabetic, they can, they can eat cookies and take a shot or they can monitor their diet and, and eat well and exercise every day. And that takes more effort, but there's that tremendous long-term gain. But I think exactly. that, um, you know, we're predisposed to those simple pleasures. And that's uh, even when it comes to anxiety uh, or, or feeling uncomfortable, you can have a drink, you can do some sort of drug, you can uh, watch Netflix, you can eat, or- You can take, you can take your SSRI, your medication. 
you can take your medication, uh, or you can do something more naturally based. And I bet, are there foods that you can eat to reduce anxiety? Well, absolutely. Well? So, so there, there's a great book. I, I met this great psychiatrist out in um, the Twin Cities about a decade ago uh, with some people you know, I think, as well, that have been involved in your uh, movement. Um, uh, his name was uh, Henry Emmons. And Henry was a bona fide psychiatrist, but he wouldn't give you pills unless your life depended on it, unless you were on the edge and, and ready to jump off a cliff or something to that effect. Otherwise, he used, um, he wrote a book called The Chemistry of Joy. And Henry used diet. So he used, for example, cashews that are rich in serotonin, um, uh, nuts, plant-based, uh, uh, you know, or, organic grains like the, the ancient grains, the quinoas of the world, things like that. To, to, uh, to battle uh, conditions such as anxiety, depression. And, you know, of course, if somebody was, uh, had bipolar disorder and, and was maniacal, of course they would get medication. You know, he wasn't uh, off the wall in that sense, uh, but he was big on diet. And again, it was a, a plant-based uh, diet that seemed to be the friendliest uh, for these, these types of conditions. Again, rich in, you know, plant-based is easy to say, but rich in nuts, legumes, things of that nature so it's a whole that that that's a whole hour discussion in of, of its own right but using that using mindful awareness whether that be traditional chinese medicine or or or, or just a you know a, a breathing app or what, whatever you call it, yoga uh whatever it is that takes your mind into one realm and not 15 at the same time one you know concentrating on one thing now that's calming the anxious mind literally so, so teaching patients techniques, but that's not something that develops overnight. That's something that takes uh, uh, years of practice and is a work in progress uh, and takes time. Uh, then, you know, it takes time to sit back. I, I don't know if you've ever tried to take 10 deep breaths and count in and count out and just keep your mind on the breathing. It's hard to get past three or four without thinking about 15 different other things with it. So it's, it's a, like training. You don't become a professional athlete overnight. But it's so useful in bringing down inflammation and in, in allowing you to, to connect with your inner self, uh, you know, your emotional well-being, your emotional intelligence, all, all, all um, rely on that. So mindful awareness is one of the treatments that you offer your patients who are dealing with anxiety and PTSD. Absolutely. And and yes, I use mindfulness every single day. I bring my thoughts to the present moment, which is the only place where life is happening. And exactly. uh, it is it is also a way to remind your brain that it's safe because right here, right now, we're normally safe. And all of this anxiety, isn't it simply our brains not feeling safe? It, 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 it stems from insecurity, absolutely. Yeah. So you also you use guided imagery techniques. What are those? Well, guided imagery is basically in, in, in our basic form in a primary care environment is, is vi visualize something that brings you peace, uh, whether it's the lake, the woods, a beautiful painting, and, and, and try to just sit there and think about the, the lake, the woods, the painting, whatever it is that, that, that brings you, you know, into a calmer state. What brings you in, in, uh, a joy? Uh, and hopefully it's not the computer or your cell phone <laughs> that you're looking at, but, but it's, but, and trying to concentrate on that in short spurts. So for two or three minutes at a time and doing it multiple times during the day and then taking out a, a little longer. And, and again, that's a time commitment, but if you think about it, what's 15, 20 minutes 
uh, to practice some of that a day if it's going to bring inflammation down, if it's going to make you healthier, both emotionally and physically. And the two are interconnected. You can't have physical health without mental health and, and vice versa. So and, I you know, guess the, the, the ancient healers figured that out a long time ago and, and said uh, that there's a from Hippocrates that says uh, healthy mind, healthy body you know, and vice versa. Whether, so, so the exercise of the world, but the mental exercise as well, not to forget, hey, okay, I went for a jog, but I'm not giving my brain any, any, any time off. Uh, right. I mean, I think maybe the medical field kind of went the way that we have gone to kind of taking the easier route, which is, uh, oh, you're, you're fatigued you are not feeling well, you um, have dark thoughts. Um, so the cluster of symptoms. So it sounds like you're depressed. Here you go. Here's a pill to help that. And we're very happy to say, ah, I could just take this pill every day and feel better because it increases my serotonin. Okay, <laughs> that's easy. But really, that's a nail on the head, and it doesn't even increase the serotonin. What it does is it, it, it your whatever your body's making in, in serotonin, it keeps the serotonin between synapses, uh, the nerves, one nerve to the other, neurotransmitter, right? So it keeps that serotonin in that gap uh, for a little bit longer. So it's not that it's replenishing serotonin, it's not. The only okay. way you replenish serotonin is by the foods you eat and what your body makes, et cetera, based on that. So, so that's the easy fix. And unfortunately, our system, our healthcare system, pays the same amount of money, uh, whether a psychiatrist, psychologist gives you a, 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 an SSRI, a medication, and sends you on your way in 10 minutes, or if they spend an hour for that same condition and say, well, you know, let's do a little bit more work here. Let's see if we can avoid, let's see. They, we're not good at doing that. And, and the people that are good at doing that are a cash-only model. So they don't take insurance. And there are several people right. in our community that do incredible work with cognitive behavioral therapy, with guided imagery, with you know, bringing people off medications. I've had several of mine that have come off of medications using it. And, but the, it's, a, it's a time commitment and it's a money commitment. You can then submit the bill to your insurance company, but there's no guarantee that they'll pay any portion of it. And so most people will say, well, I can't afford that. And the, the second best is to send them to a, a psychiatrist office or institute where they, they see a licensed social worker and psychiatrist. But again, that's most of the times that ends up in here's take a pill and go away. But it, and it's not the, the psychiatrist or psychologist's fault. It's just the way the system's set up. So we, we need a major revamping of our healthcare system. And unfortunately, I don't see that happening in, in, uh, in our lifetime. Um, and that it's it's a it's a hot potato nobody's touching and I don't think they're going to touch it with this administration or the next for that matter, and it, and when they do touch it, it'll take another five ten years to implement. So we're talking about a good twenty years down the road before anything of, of substance uh, happens to our healthcare system, and that's if somebody ever decides to tackle it. The special interests are are, are just way too high. Our our lobbyists. Um, in Washington have done a, a disservice to the American people. I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not being political. I mean, this is coming from my heart and, and my 25 years in healthcare. And I think most of my colleagues feel the same way that, that it's, it's taken away from the, the, the provider-patient uh, relationship, whether you're an APRN or a PA or a doctor or a nurse, doesn't matter. Uh, it's, 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 um, it's financials getting in the way of that healing bond. 
Well, there's not a lot of you know, money. The, the way the old GP used to know it, you know, know you when you were in your little rural area of Maine, et cetera, and that GP knew everybody in the village, knew what made you tick, knew your mom and dad and brothers and sisters and really could treat you yeah. in, in a substantial yeah. manner, yeah. In a holistic way. And there's not a lot of money in in wellness. No, there (laughs) isn't. So that's why you see these models of primary care where where you're seeing, you know, four or five patients an hour. How can you see somebody in 10 minutes, talk to them, treat them, do all of the bureaucratical stuff on the computer, click here, click their bill and see the next. I mean, it's physically impossible. You can do it and put out a fire if somebody has a sore throat or a cough and say, okay, look in your throat, take this antibiotic, go away. But you can't do anything more than that. You certainly can't deal with, you know, more complex issues like hypertension, diabetes, you know, metabolic syndrome in in that short of a period of time. And if you don't, then you're not physically sound. And then you have to belong to a corporation or, or a larger healthcare organization. So the days of the private practitioners or the private groups are, are quickly dwindling. In my opinion. Yeah. Speaking of fires, I, I do, I know that there are chemical imbalances that, um, people have that can be corrected with drugs, with pharmaceuticals. I'm just curious myself, what is the percentage? It just, just in your opinion of people that come in that, uh, that, literally have a chemical imbalance that should be medicated with those that could handle the problem themselves with education and a little bit of guidance and direction um, like mindfulness and guided imagery and things that depends you on the condition actually if things you're that we about, teach yeah no i mean it, it depends on the condition so if you're talking about a, a you know complex bipolar or schizophrenia or something like that of course there's a chemical imbalance of course you need medication but in conjunction with a good dietary regimen exercise uh, etc that's a different story now if you're talking about anxiety and depression that too can be genetic and run in families but is is much more amenable to the mindful awareness and 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 the nutritional approach uh, there, there's, there's no harm in trying unless that person is, is again on the edge and, uh, you know, severely depressed where you're not going to get to them in time with nutrition and mindful awareness. So percentage wise, it's hard to, it depends on the, on the age group you're talking about. It, it's highly variable. What I am seeing is a, a huge number and what we're all seeing in here, we're, there are 10 practitioners in our group. Um, anxiety is in, in the younger population, the under thirties is, is skyrocketing. And, and that is very amenable to, to uh, uh, the, the stuff we just talked about and, and less related to chemical imbalance and more related to, to lifestyle and, and what's going on around them. So there are skills and tools that so we So it depends on what, you know, what is right and, and how strong the genes are in the family. If the whole family had panic attacks on one side, then, then you're kind of behind the eight ball to... To correct that, but but make no mistake about it, you can't correct it with just a pill and you know come back in three months approach. Uh, that's regardless of what you choose to do, whether you choose to treat with pill and the person's at, at, at a 10 out of 10 of intensity of symptoms or not, you have to use nutrition, exercise, mindful awareness as, as adjuncts to that therapy. 
Well, I know that a lot of people that are listening are going to wonder if you're taking new patients and I'm, and I'm asking for myself as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not, unfortunately, we've been, we, we're all fully booked in here, but we're trying to remedy that um, and add some partners. So if we, we had a few partners retire and had to absorb their patients because we felt very emotionally bound to them. Uh, but uh, we hopefully will remedy it within the next few months. Uh, we're adding a few practitioners and, and uh, once we can open up like that, we'll be able to open up to, to more patients. Well, okay. We want to do this in, in, in fairness to the patients we have. We want to be able to spend the time with them and not say, I can't see you for two weeks, go to urgent care. Yes, of course. It's happening uh, more often now in, in, in the medical community. So exactly. we kind of sacrifice the, the financial for, you know, for proper care with that. It's not so can I see another 10 patients a day? Of course I can, but I wouldn't be doing justice to the patients I am seeing, the, the, my, my current patients. I'd be right. putting out fires. Yeah. Understand completely. This has been delightful. I've got to get back to practice. Uh, Absolutely. I look forward to speaking you off to offline. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was Thank incredible. Thank you for the invite. This is, this is a, a heartfelt discussion. And, uh, and uh, let, let's do more of them. Okay, absolutely. Thank you Sounds so good. much. Have a great Thanks, day. Sarah, you be well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, hey, oh. It's all part of us. We can all choose love. It'll lift you up if you let it in. Let the healing Thanks begin. for listening to the Choose Love Podcast. Our positive, empowering messaging is reaching millions of people all over the planet. Join the worldwide movement to choose love. Our programming is in over 10,000 schools, homes, and communities across the country, in every state, and over 112 countries and counting. We are giving individuals of all ages the essential life skills they need to flourish. You can be part of the solution, too. We have sponsorship opportunities available that help support us and enable you to share in helping create a safer, more peaceful, and loving world. Contact me on our website, chooselovemovement.org.